Well, what comes to mind when you hear these, these names? Uh, John D. Rockefeller, uh, Andrew Carnegie, uh, names like Henry Ford. Now, several things may, may come to mind, uh, but one thing that unites all of these people is that they were some of the wealthiest people to ever live. Uh, today, in 2022, people are arguing over who's richer, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. But to be honest, uh, those two have nothing on, on the amount of personal wealth that men like Rockefeller or Carnegie or Ford held. Uh, adjusted to today's dollars, Carnegie had a personal net worth of around $310 billion. Rockefeller had a personal net worth of upwards of $340 billion. These, these men had unbelievable wealth, unbelievable influence, unbelievable control and power in their day. But let me ask you this as well. Besides me, right now, who's really talking about John D. Rockefeller or Andrew Carnegie or Henry Ford today? Is anyone in the world uh, feeling as though these men, with, with all of their wealth and with all the power that they held and all of their prestige, is anybody still today still, still feeling and, and, and sensing their significant influence in culture and in their day? In fact, some of us might here be thinking like, wow, what did Carnegie even do? Right? And, and they didn't die that long ago. Now, now today, listen, aside from me, probably nobody's talking about Carnegie or Rockefeller or even Henry Ford. Today's maybe the first time in, in years that you've even heard their names mentioned or thought, for the, thought about them for more than a, than, than a mere second. And why is that? It's because none of these men are still alive today. It's because as, as incredible as it is to, to think about how wealthy these men were, it's still just that. They were wealthy. It's in the past. Wealth does not bring immortality. Prestige does not last forever. Influence fades away. Death still comes to everyone, both rich and poor, both wise and foolish. And this psalm, as this psalm so poetically says, death shall be their shepherd. No amount of riches, no amount of wealth, no amount of, no amount of power or fame or prestige will save you from that. And in fact, to trust in riches, to, to yearn for them in such a, such a way that you believe that just by accumulating more and more that you'll finally find some level of peace and hope in life is in fact, as scripture would define it, foolish. Psalm 49 reads like, like a proverb, a wise saying, but, but Psalm 49 that you just heard read also could be read somewhat like a, like a commentary to Jesus' teaching in Luke 12. If you're familiar with a lot of Jesus' teaching, he, he said this in Luke 12. He says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Right after this, he goes on to, to, to tell this parable. The story of this rich man who had so much land that, that his barns couldn't hold the amount of crops that his land was producing. He had so much that he ended up tearing down his old barns and he built all these larger ones so he could just store all of his grain, all of his goods. And now the, parable, the point of that parable isn't to teach us that saving and preparing for a future is a foolish thing, but, but as Jesus taught this parable, he, what he was saying is this man was storing up all his possessions so that he could, in the end, sit back, relax, hoard it all to himself, and, and say, I've arrived. I've got it all covered. 
I have nothing more to fear in this life. I've got joy unspeakable. Nothing can happen to me now. This is my security. And Jesus said of this man in Luke 12, verse 20, you fool. This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Meaning, as we read Psalm 49, it's a commentary of that passage and that teaching. Death will be your shepherd, you fool. And all that you have, all that you've built up, all that you've accumulated is going to be left behind to someone else who didn't earn it, who didn't work for it, who doesn't deserve it, and now they get to enjoy it. Psalm 49 is a psalm about the emptiness of riches. It's a psalm that we all need to listen to. We need to hear it, we need to respond to it, and we need to hold up our lives next to it. So the psalm, as I said, opens much like like a proverb. In the first three verses, the the psalmist says, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. And he says, My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. So so in those first few verses, do you hear hear wisdom's call to all people? So, So it's saying whether you're rich or whether you're poor, Wise or foolish, you all need to hear this. Now, we, we want to stop and pause for a second and ask the question, why everyone? Why does everyone need to hear this, this psalm, hear wisdom's call? Because you might be tempted to think here, I don't have any money. <laughs> I don't have any money. You want to look at my bank statement? I'll prove it to you. I don't have any wealth to be resting in any wealth to be finding my security in. I don't have any riches to to, to make much of my soul in this life. And so this psalm must be for the wealthy people out there today, but it's not for me. But that's not how the psalm opens. it, It calls all, both low and high, both rich and poor together, listen. Listen. Why? Because the wealthy need to hear this because their their temptation is to trust in their current wealth as a means of peace and security. Whereas the poor are tempted to think that if they were to just attain a certain level of wealth, that they'll find that, that, that peace and security. Both of those pursuits, though, lead to misery and are foolish, which is why the psalmist says, no, both low and high, rich, poor, we all need to hear wisdom's call. As believers in here, we need to hear this psalm. As those of us who have grown up in the West from, from birth and like we have been discipled by the world, by our culture to find happiness in possessions, to find joy in things. Being materialistic does not mean you, you necessarily own a lot of possessions. You actually may own very little and still be a materialist because materialism isn't defined by owning a collection of expensive things or unique things or even many things. But instead, materialism is defined by you finding your joy and satisfaction in things of the world, whatever they may be and however much or how little of them you actually own. So you cannot argue with me that, that, that happiness in things is not the mantra of our culture. That's not the air that we have breathed since we took our very first breath. And, and the church has not escaped this. Even those of us who are, who are active in, in Christian work, even those of us who are engaged within the life of the church, far too often our hope is still placed in the things that we can see and not in spiritual realities that we cannot see. What's Colossians 3 say? Set your mind on things above, not on things of this, this earth. 
But so often, we even as believers set our minds far too often on the things that we can see and not on spiritual realities that are unseen. Which means then just our, by, by nature, our inclination, our temptation, even our realization is to trust in wealth, to trust in creation rather than the creator. To think that, that true power is found in the accumulation of more and more stuff and more and more influence. But it's just not true. And so this psalm in its introduction calls us to listen to wisdom and find life, to find purpose, to find eternal joy. That's the introduction, as I said, a call to hear wisdom. And so the psalmist in this introduction is, is calling us to say, hear this, hear wisdom, which, which is going to lead you into the fullness of joy and hope and eternal life. It's, it's calling us to say, no, hear God's words, the God who has made you who's breathed life into your lungs, who made all things, listen to him tell you where hope and joy should be found. Here, as we've learned from previous psalms that we've walked through, right, why those who hope in God should not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam as we saw a few weeks ago in Psalm 46. Here, why we should not fear when surrounded by enemies, by those who would seek to to harm us and abuse us and mistreat us and oppress us and cheat us, as we saw weeks ago in Psalm 37. And here in this psalm today, why we need not fear the powerful and the wealthy. Here today, the foolishness of hoping in riches and the things of this world. Our hope is in a God who owns everything and can make anything out of nothing. Our hope is in a God who, who reigns over all things, both life and over death. That is our hope. So will you listen to, to wisdom's call today, all peoples? Let's jump in as we walk through this psalm. Verse 4 says, I will incline my ear to a proverb, and I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. And so the psalmist begins here by, by asking a riddle. He begins by asking a riddle. Now, my, 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 kids, my kids love riddles. They love riddles. So at the dinner table, every time without fail, my daughter, uh, she'll say, um, when we sit down, hey, can we do table questions? Meaning what she's asking for, she's wanting us as a family to engage in meaningful and thought-provoking questions about either our day or about us as a family, our likes and our dislikes, our personalities and so forth. And we kind of ask questions, we kind of go around the table answering them. And so sometimes we'll just ask basic questions like, how's your day? What's the high? What's the low? What, things like that. But sometimes we'll ask, uh, would you rather questions? So those are some fun things my kids love. Like, would you rather? Like questions like, would you, would you rather be able to see 10 minutes into the future or 150 years into the future? Right? So, so ask those questions. Or would you rather be able to stop time or be able to go back in time? Would you rather have the ability to be invisible or the, the ability to fly? So those thought-provoking questions just to kind of see our kids' personalities. My kids love questions like those. And now it's going to be all that you guys are thinking about from this point forward. But they, they also love like riddles. They love riddles, hard sayings, and try to figure things out, such as a riddle that we actually just asked us at the dinner table just a couple of nights ago. We asked a riddle, what's really easy to get into, but very hard to get out of? What's really easy to get into, but very hard to get out of? Now, just so you're not all thinking, all right, someone said it, all right? Now, just so you're not all thinking about that for the remainder of the message, because we got to move on. The answer to that riddle is trouble, 
right? Trouble, easy to get into, very hard to get out of. So the psalmist here is asking a riddle. And what is that riddle? Well, we see it in verses 5 and 6. He says, why should I fear in times of trouble? Why should I fear in times of trouble? When, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. Well, what's the riddle he's asking? Well, let's unpack this a little bit. Trouble naturally brings fear. Trouble naturally brings fear, doesn't it? If you were to get caught standing in, a, in the middle of a golf course during a lightning storm holding your nine iron, that should bring some fear. If, you, if the brakes gave out in your car while you're driving down the interstate downhill at 70 miles per hour, that should cause a little bit of fear. If you're at the zoo mocking the lion and all of a sudden the, the, the gate to the lion cage breaks open, that natural response should be fear, right? Trouble, we know it. Trouble naturally brings fear. And so the riddle that the psalmist seeks to solve is why should he not fear in times of trouble? Why should I fear in times of trouble? This is a mystery. It's a hard saying. Why, why he should not fear when his enemies are surrounding him, cheating him, oppressing him, when his enemies who seek to do him great harm have also great wealth, great means, great power, great influence. When it seems to this psalmist that the cards are stacked up against him, why should he not fear? Listen, today is the culture becoming more tolerant or less tolerant of Christians? Are those in positions of authority and power becoming more Christ-like or less Christ-like? It might be a, a bit of a mixed bag there, but I think we could agree here this morning that Western culture especially is moving further away from just basic Christian morality. And this is to be expected. The, the world will never accept the person of Christ and accept his message, which is a message of repentance and faith, meaning that the message that we proclaim, that Christ has proclaimed, is that human beings are intrinsically bad, not intrinsically good. Human beings are wicked and sinful, people who need to repent, confess their sins, and turn from them in faith to Christ and submit to him as Lord. That, that we as Christ followers are called to do just that, follow him, meaning we deny ourselves and we follow him. We take up our cross daily and we pursue Jesus above all else. That's the message of Christ. That's what we as believers are called to proclaim. Therefore, naturally, trouble's going to come from those who reject that message. But, but here against the riddle, why do we need not fear? Why do we need not fear when trouble surrounds us from those who are in positions of great power and influence? Well, let's get to the next section of the psalm as he solves the riddle. He's going to solve the riddle in verses 7 through 12. He says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the, the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. What is the great equalizer? What is the great leveler of humanity? No matter how strong you are, no matter how rich you are, no matter how 
powerful you are, no matter how influential you are, what is the great equalizer? It's death. Death is the great equalizer that no man, no woman can escape. No matter how strong you are, how powerful you are, or how wealthy you are. You guys remember the scene in uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, best, best movie in the, in the series, where, where Indy is in, in the marketplace, and, and all of a sudden he, he gets into this fight with just a bunch of bungling bad guys, right? So, so it's like 20, 30 guys all come after him, and he just takes them all on just with his fist. That's like all he needs, and he beats them all up, no problem whatsoever, because they're just a bunch of buffoons who don't know what they're doing. And, and, and so he, he's, he's in the marketplace, and he gets rid of them, and then he's kind of moving his way out, and all of a sudden he's confronted with this, this skilled swordsman. Right, the skilled swordsman. You remember that scene in the movie? And if you're like, I haven't seen it. Spoiler alert, coming on. Um, but man, the movie came out in '81, right? So, uh, spoiler alert. And if you're like, well, I was going to watch it today, you know, like, so uh, you'll still enjoy it. You'll still enjoy it. So, so he comes face to face with this like skilled swordsman. The crowd parts ways, right? Revealing this this bad guy dressed all in black. He's tall. He's scary looking, and he's waving this this shiny Arabian sword. And he's doing all sorts of tricks with it. And so so the, the scene is that this guy, yeah, these were a bunch of buffoons who didn't know what they're doing, but this guy is a trained killer, right? This guy is skilled, and Indy has little chance against this guy. Well, the scene lasts like five seconds. And if you see him, you know what he does. Indy just pulls out his revolver and one little shot, and the guy just drops like backwards, and, and the scene's over, right? Like, so, so when we think through this psalm, What's the great equalizer? I don't care who you are, how big you are, how scary you are, what skills you have. No one on earth has the ability to escape death. No one. And like verse 7 says, no one on earth has the ability even to save another or to ransom another or to redeem another from death. Again, no matter how much means they may have. During the 18th century, the French atheist Voltaire he was one of the most famous and, and, and well-known individuals to rise up during the Enlightenment. And his writings, especially his satirical attacks on Christianity, were, were, were read almost everywhere, which caused him to become a, a very wealthy and very influential man. Yet it was reported that, that toward the end of his life, when Voltaire was on his deathbed, he cried and cried to his doctor in desperation and told him he would give, give the doctor half of all of his possessions if this doctor would give him just six more months of life. Give me six more months of life, doctor, and I'll give you half of all that I own. Well, this is the 18th century. The doctor is unable to do anything to prolong life. And so Voltaire died, leaving, again, everything he had behind. See, even with all of his wealth, even Voltaire couldn't slow the approach of death. It's the great equalizer. It's the great leveler of, of all humanity. That's verse 10. Both the wise and the foolish can't escape the clutches of death. But what, but what separates the, the wise from the foolish is that the wise understand and accept their mortality, whereas the foolish avoid it, reject it, refuse it, or, or think in some odd way that maybe their wealth can save them. See, all people, to some degree, they know death is inescapable. We know death is inescapable. But fools, according to Scripture, live as though they'll live forever. I'm going to live forever. 
Now you may be thinking, okay, so are we just supposed to like live with this like inescapable thought weighing on of us our, of our inevitable demise? Is that how we're just supposed to live then? Well, it could be today. Well, not at all. And Scripture doesn't call us to live in a state of fear and worry or hopelessness either. But when we live as though death is not a reality, we actually end up taking our eyes off of a God who loves us and cares for us and is for us, and we begin to live in such a way that's not dependent on him. We begin to, to, to beat our own chests and think, I'm sufficient to get through this day, that I'm all I need. See, death, as hard as it is, is a reminder to us of the temporary state of this world. It's a reminder to us that this world and that we ourselves are fractured and broken and in need of redemption. Death is a reminder to us that that nothing in this world can be our security and our ultimate peace. It reminds us that our ultimate need is God's grace and his forgiveness. It's a reminder to us that though everything in life is temporary, as we sang today, God's love is vast and it's eternal to those who belong to him. Tim Keller in his, his masterful little book called On Death says as much. Listen to what Keller says. He says, rather than living in fear of death, we should see death as spiritual smelling salts that will awaken us out of our false belief that we will live forever. When you're at a funeral, especially one for a friend or a loved one, listen to God speaking to you, telling you that everything in life is temporary except for his love. He goes on to say, it's it's in death that God says, if I'm not your security, then you've got no security because I'm the only thing that can't be taken away from you. I will hold you in my everlasting arms. Every other set of arms will fail you, but I will never fail you. You see, the fool beats his chest and says, nothing can stop me. I'm all I need. Look how great I am, that I'm invincible. That's the mantra of the fool. But the reality is, as we read in verse 12, that man in his pomp, man in his pomp will not remain. That like the beasts, he'll be like them all that perish. And so, so to answer the riddle the psalmist proposes, why should we not fear when trouble surrounds us? It's because trouble is temporary. It's temporary. Trouble itself will not remain forever. That those who cause trouble are temporary and will not remain forever. In fact, those who would seek to cause trouble and abuse their power and their authority, those that would seek to oppress those underneath them, those that would seek to flex their wealth, and have, they have a great judgment, Scripture says, coming upon them. And those who hope in God actually then have a great reward. And that's what we see starting in verses 13 through 15. It says, this is the path. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they're appointed for shield. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in shield with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of shield, for he will receive me. See, this here is, as I outlined it, just the great contrast. The great contrast mainly between the wise and the foolish. See, the psalmist here is going to continue speaking of the, of the fool's inevitable demise, but he's also going to speak to those who would be wise enough to hear his words and respond to them. So there's this contrast between the wise 
and the foolish. In verse 13, we see, as the psalmist says, the path of the fool, the path of the one who trusts in their riches. We also see in verse 13 the path of any who approve of their foolishness, meaning this, that the the psalmist is saying that not all who are foolish are even rich and wealthy. He's speaking of those who follow the rich and the powerful, who aspire to be like them, who approve of their philosophy of life, who approve of them and want to be like them. The psalmist says they're just as foolish. A few years ago, I watched this, uh, I saw this news clip, um, and uh, I'm not really sure what the story was about, but the reporter was, she was out in a park, and and uh, she was on a basketball court. It's probably just a story about the start of summer or people like, getting out and being active. That's, that's not the point. But, but the end of her, her, uh, her interview, she had some guys that she was interviewing there. Uh, she was on basketball court. She's probably about the three-point line. So someone hands her a basketball. And so she's closing out this, this segment uh, by turning around and taking a shot. So she turns around, takes a shot. The shot actually looks pretty good. It, it hits the rim and starts to swirl. And she turns back around to face the camera, already cheering because she thought the ball went in, because it, it looked like it was, it was going in. So she's, she's cheering and high-fiving the guy next to her and, 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 and thinking, look, I hit down the first, first try and everything like that. Well, the ball didn't go in. It, it, it swirled around, then popped back out. So as, the, as we're watching the ball pop out of the rim, she's cheering uh, of, her, of her victory of, of, of draining that shot. Now, the guy standing next to her that, that she was interviewing, he saw the ball not go in, and yet still turns around, faces the camera, and is high-fiving her, like, great shot, yes, that went in. So, so we're watching this as viewers and being like, a bunch of fools, right? Like, they, they, you didn't make the shot, and the person who even saw you miss the shot is now approving and affirming that you made the shot. And so on camera, they're just looking silly. They're looking foolish. Well, that's, that's so much like what we see here. We see, we see this, this contrast that the psalmist is laying to say, Okay, here's the wisdom of God. Here's the wisdom of God's word. You won't find hope, joy, meaning, eternal life, satisfaction, purpose in the things of this world. And yet we have millions and millions and millions of people have bought into that, 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 that concept, bought into that philosophy. No, I will. And so when you line up their lives against Scripture, they look like fools. And the psalmist is saying, and the people that are proving of that, they look just as foolish. This is, this is what the psalmist is calling us to hear and respond to. To the person who makes money and power and prestige and reputation, their security in life and their joy in life and their hope in life and their purpose in life and their true end of their life, that true end of that person is not only a physical death but a spiritual death. They are played and seen as the fool. Verse 14 says that the one whose hope is their riches and power and prestige, that that death will be their shepherd. That their eternal home is Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for the the realm of the dead. See, Scripture explains death as as enemy territory. It it reveals and shows death as as never being satisfied. Like death always wants more. It's always hungry. I want more souls, death wants. It's it's seen as a barren wasteland. It's seen death as, as, as a place of no escape. In the realm of the dead, that death itself, eternal spiritual death, is the final destination of, of all human beings. That is where we are heading because of our rejection, our betrayal, and rebellion against the holy God. 
And that no man, no woman can escape under their own power and strength the clutches of death. That's Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. But praise God for verse 15, right? Praise God for verse 15. Look at what it says. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, from the realm of the dead, for he will receive me. See, eternal death is inescapable under our own power and strength. No man, as we saw in verses 7 and 8, can even ransom another from its clutches. But God can ransom my soul from its power. And how did he do that? He ransoms our soul to Christ, his son. See, it was Jesus, God in the flesh, who entered into our humanity, entered into humanity, identified with us in our weakness, yet to do so, and he did so without sin. It was Jesus who went to the cross where he faced death head on, our great enemy, the great equalizer. It was Jesus who entered into the realm of the dead. He went to the grave. He went to the pit. He died. It was Jesus who entered into the place of no escape, and he kicked down its gates from within so that through his resurrection, we might be redeemed. We might be received through faith in him. I love this quote by Matthew Emerson. He says, Because of Christ's atoning death, descent to the place of the dead, and glorious resurrection from the dead, Sheol is no longer the enemy's bunker. The strong man's house has been plundered. Because of Christ's work, Sheol is no longer the exilic wilderness. Israel's suffering servant has walked through this valley of the shadow of death, Sheol, and has emerged victorious on the other side. And now he guides all those who are united to him by faith through that same valley, shining the light of his resurrection to guide us. See, the one who trusts in their wealth and their power and reputation will die, will leave everything behind to another, will soon be forgotten just as the names of those mentioned at the beginning have been forgotten. But the one who trusts in God will be redeemed by him, received by him, Adopted as sons and daughters by him, loved by him, raised to eternal life to enjoy fellowship with him forever and ever and ever. Eternal death to the one whose hope is in God will not be their home. Death will not be their shepherd. Those who reject God are forever shepherded by eternal death, but those who have turned in faith to Christ will be forever shepherded by the Lord. Isn't that what we see in Psalm 23? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you're with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That's the destination. That's the destiny of all who hope in God. This is the great contrast between those who trust in themselves and those who trust in God who reigns over all. Either death will be your shepherd or God will be your shepherd. It's why we need not fear when trouble surrounds us. And so as we conclude this psalm this morning, the psalmist closes with this this appeal to to respond to wisdom and understanding. See, the psalm began with, with a call to hear wisdom, And now in these final verses, we see a a call to respond to wisdom. Look at verses 16 through 20. He 
He says, be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Verse 20, similar to verse 12, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. So here, I believe, is our proper response to wisdom's call. Very simply, don't fear man, instead fear God. Don't fear man, instead fear God. Where does wisdom and understanding begin? How do we understand and walk through difficult realities in life? How do we make sense of the mystery of life and death and prosperity? We have a book of Proverbs as well. Hear how the book of Proverbs opens up and answers that question. It says, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Here we go. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So where does wisdom and knowledge begin? How do we respond to this psalm? We respond by taking our eyes off the things of this world, by taking our eyes off of ourselves, by letting go of temporary things which will bring no lasting joy. And instead, instead we place our eyes, our hope, our joy, our hearts, our salvation on a good and holy God who has authority over life and death. A good and holy God who loves you. A good and holy God who is able to redeem you and receive you and ransom you from the power of death because this God went into the realm of the dead and busted down its gates. A good and holy God who invites you into fellowship with him regardless of who you are and what your background is, but invites you into fellowship, eternal joy and fellowship with him where you will find unending joy and satisfaction, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Life as it was intended to be lived. And so will you let go of the temporary things to grab hold of what's eternal? Let's pray.